So this past, last Sunday, uh, a woman uh, brought her mom to church. She had been praying for her mom for 30-some years, and her mom had a really powerful experience of God's presence right here in the worship service last week and felt God drawing her heart to him. It was beautiful. During the week, uh, actually the week before, uh, another woman came down front and uh, she brought with her a friend that uh, she has come to church with, and her friend just wanted to tell me that recently she'd put her faith in Christ. It was fantastic. This week, I got an email from Ada Bible, and a couple of people at Ada Bible Church who were celebrating with us that there is another woman that uh, both people from Calvary and people from Ada Bible have been praying for and uh, walking alongside of, and the pastor from Ada Bible just wanted to say how overjoyed he was uh, that this woman has indeed come to faith and is worshiping at Calvary, and we could celebrate together uh, what the Lord is doing in her life. God is at work doing amazing things. Every week, it seems, this candle up here, and you may not know what that's for, but this candle is just a very quiet, silent way that we give praise to God. When someone in our congregation comes to faith, or someone in our congregation is a part of helping someone else come to faith, we light this candle. And it's just a very silent way of saying, uh, Jesus is the light of the world, uh, and his light is spreading. Uh, Now, it's not just here at Calvary. Uh, New Heart Church, this church that we've just planted in East Grand Rapids, they have their first Easter service coming up, and they are planning on doing baptisms of, I think it's going to be up to about 10% of their congregation who have come to faith since the church has been planted. I got an email this week from a church that we partner with uh, in England through the Jerusalem Project here at Calvary. Uh, It's in Oxford, it's about a four or five year old church plan and I got an email from the pastor saying that he was just rejoicing that one of their inquirers, that's sort of the British word for uh, people who are visiting and sort of checking things out, he said one of the inquirers has come to faith just this past week. Lisa and I were on the phone with the same, uh, the students worker and his wife from that same church Uh, and he had no idea that I had heard all these other stories this week, but he was just simply sharing that they have 15 new students at the church uh, from Oxford, from the university there, and that five of them have put their faith in Christ since the year began. Really amazing, uh, amazing, encouraging things. It was a great week. It was a good week to get emails. (laughs) I, I couldn't wait to see what the Lord was up to. This is what Isaiah 34 and 35 uh, are talking about. And we have a chance to look today at the fact that even though in this world uh, very, very hard things are happening, and even though in this world people are enmeshed in sin and on a path towards destruction, God is actively at work rescuing and saving people. And the good news is, is that you and I can be part of that. We get to be part and seeing in what God's doing, and I'd like to show you from Isaiah 34 and 35 how that might be. So please, if you will, take a Bible and turn to Isaiah 34. In the church Bibles, that's page 581, and so if you grab one of the Bibles from the rack in front of you, turn to page 581, you'll be in the book of Isaiah chapter 34. We're going to cover chapters 34 and 35 today. And 
we want to think together about how God can use us to bring about people coming to faith in Jesus. Chapter 34, I'll begin in verse 1. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Isaiah 34 is a chapter about judgment. It's a very sobering word, but God has proclaimed that although he is a God full of compassion and mercy, and although God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to faith through Jesus, there is coming a day of judgment. That God's anger at the sin that is taking place in this world, as restrained as it is now, as much as he is slow to anger, there is coming a day when that wrath will be poured out on every single living person on this earth who does not know Jesus as their Savior. It's very sobering news. It's a hard word. I only read you the first four verses because if I read you the whole chapter, it's all this very heavy, deep, serious thing. Now, the mercy of God is that he tells us this ahead of time. He doesn't want this to be a secret. Do you see what he says in verse one? Come near you nations and listen. Let the earth hear. God is saying, I don't take any pleasure in destroying people. I have no interest in punishing people except for the fact that judgment must indeed come and the mercy of God is, please hear God. Listen, it's coming now. Why not rescue yourself? Why not save yourself from the coming judgment? God is indeed compassionate and merciful and gracious and wants you to know eternal life and salvation and his plea is judgment is coming but if today today you hear his voice you will not be part of that and God says let the whole earth hear this message is not reserved for a few people he wants every single person on earth to know judgment is coming but there is salvation in Jesus but there's a problem I mean, it's spelled out pretty clearly in Isaiah 34. It's heavy, and it's a hard teaching. But it's pretty straightforward. Judgment is coming. But there's a problem. You know what the problem is? It's right here in Isaiah 34. Who's ever going to see it? Oh, you and I might see it. (laughs) But in reality, most Christians don't read Isaiah, let alone non-Christians. It's right there in Isaiah 34. Can you see it? How's anybody in the world going to see that? God says, let all the nations of the earth listen. 
This judgment will affect all people, but the problem is where it's written, nobody's going to see it. It reminds me a couple of years ago, I was on a plane uh, and I was seated next to an Orthodox Jewish man. Uh, and he had his Hebrew scriptures and he was reading them. He was very devout. And so this was a great opportunity. We struck up a conversation and we sort of talked about uh, the scriptures and those sorts of things. And so I simply asked him a question. What do you think of the book of Isaiah? Because I know that there's no better place in all the Old Testament for uh, the gospel to be heard than in the book of Isaiah, that in Isaiah, God is so clear about what it is he's going to do. And do you know what this Orthodox Jewish man said to me? He said, oh, we don't read Isaiah. (laughs) I was like, why not? He's like, well, if we did, we'd all be Christians. (laughs) This was his serious answer. He's like, we don't read Jeremiah, we don't read Ezekiel. You guys have taken those books. They're yours. (laughs) Now, the problem is, if an Orthodox Jewish person is never going to get to Isaiah 34, who is? How's anybody ever going to hear this? God wants every single person to know judgment is coming, but there is life in Jesus. And if nobody's ever going to open this and read, how's anybody going to know? Well, one solution is that you can take the words from Isaiah 34 and the rest of the Bible and put them in a form that people might be able to see them in. I've got a picture I pulled down off the internet that sort of uh, symbolizes that. You can take words from the Bible, this is actually from 1 John, and put it on a placard. You can write them in a small booklet like a tract and hand them to people. You can go door to door and knock on doors and tell people, Judgment is coming, but God wants to save you through Jesus. That is a very viable way of helping people to realize, look, this is truth. And before we dismiss this, or any of those ways, I just want to say, lots and lots of people have come to faith because Christians were willing to try to take some of this message and put it out there for people to see. Now, having said that, sometimes in doing this, it tends not to be God's kindness that is used to lead people to repentance. It tends instead to be a spirit of judgmentalism. I'm not saying one way or another. I'm just simply saying, look, this is an attempt to try to get the words out of this closed book and get them in front of people. And God has blessed that and used it to see many, many people come to faith. If, however, this way of doing that doesn't resonate as much with you, if perhaps you think, yeah, that's not so much my personality, if you think, I don't think at my school or at my workplace or in my neighborhood that approach would go very well, I've got good news for you. And that is that Isaiah 35 gives another way. Another way that you can help see people understand the truth of what God has to say. I'd like to show you that way now. Isaiah 35 is another way to see people come to faith. Not in all disparaging this way, but simply saying there are multiple ways that we can share the good news of Jesus with other people. And so please look at what we have in Isaiah 35. We begin in verses 1 and 2. 
The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Now, I put one picture up here to sort of symbolize a way of telling people what's in the Bible. Let me give you another picture that helps symbolize what's going on in Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. Now, the first picture I pulled off the internet. The second picture, that's actually me. <coughs> um, so that wasn't on the internet. And that is a picture of me in the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, exactly what Isaiah is talking about. And I want you to notice just kind of the feel of the wilderness. It's brown, and it's dry, and it's hard, and it's a place of death. And nobody would just go hang out in the wilderness for no reason. It's not a place of life. I'm there uh, because uh, we were leading a trip here from Calvary. That's a picture from the trip. Nobody else is in it. They're all faking the picture. But just before this picture was taken, we were all together, and uh, my wife Lisa was sharing a devotional spiritual formation exercise, and we were all praying in this spot. And while we were there praying about wilderness, God very powerfully brought to my mind Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. And I felt this compulsion. You know this feeling where you're just, you're not sure where it came from. I just felt a compulsion to get up and to walk. And where I walked was up the backside there of that hill. And I walked sort of in a straight line, not sure what I was doing, but just walked very uh, strategically until I got to this. And I took this picture. And there, in the middle of that exact scene, is this little green flower just bursting forth in a very hard, difficult, dry, and dead place. As soon as I saw it, because the Lord had already brought Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 to mind, it hit me. I, so I, I don't take a lot of pictures. I took this picture, and I thought, that's what God is talking about. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 is about the fact that in the wilderness... God causes people to bloom. Amen. And the idea he's talking about here is, yes, literally in the Judean wilderness, this can happen. But in reality, what he's talking about is the wildernesses of our lives. That when you find yourself in the wilderness, it could be a financial wilderness that you're in. It could be the wilderness of a health crisis. It could be the wilderness and the struggle with dealing with same-sex attraction. It could be the wilderness of a marriage that's falling apart. It could be the wilderness or the difficulty of a loved one, end-of-life issues. It could be things that you're struggling with at school, with bullying that's taking place, with a class that's too hard for you. It can be the wilderness that you're going through and feeling estranged from someone that you've been friends with for a long time. Whatever that picture is, whatever that wilderness is, the picture in Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 is that God can bring life into the wilderness. And in a place where you would never choose to be, and you might be there because of your sins, 
or you might be there because of the sins of others, or because of both, but regardless of how you got into that wilderness, the good news of Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 is God brings life into the wilderness. And what's so powerful to me about this picture is that you can't help but notice the flower. I mean, it's the only green thing that's there. It's all rock. It's all hard. And yet, here's this flower sticking up out of it. And you can't help. Likewise, when God brings life into your wilderness experience, people are going to notice other people, now the whole world can't see that. When I showed you the big picture, you couldn't see this little flower. But up close, people who are nearby, people who know you, they can see life. And again, the thing that I think is so powerful about this picture, you can't see any water. You know it has to be there. Things don't grow without water. But you can't see it. There's no rivers, there's no stream. There must have been rain at some point. I don't know exactly how this thing got water. So it is with our lives. People around us, they don't know about God. They can't see God. They may not even believe in God. But when there is blooming in the wilderness, it says there's got to be water somewhere. Something that gives life must be giving life to us. And so Isaiah 35 says, in this context in which judgment and sin and destruction and death and the world is full of wildernesses, comes this good news of Isaiah 35 that God causes people to bloom in the wilderness. And so if you want to think about Isaiah 35 as sort of a step-by-step guide for how to help others come to faith that may be different than knocking on doors or handing out verses or standing on street corners. Step one would be, bloom where you're planted. Allow God to plant you in the wilderness. Again, no plant is ever going to choose this. Nobody here would ever choose abuse or divorce or abandonment or bullying, or struggles with lust, or envy. Nobody would choose those things. But if God's allowed you into the wilderness, step one is blossom where you're at. Let him bring you life. Let him bring you water into the situation so that you can bloom. Step two, look at verses three and four. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. This was our choir song. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Step two is, when people around you, and they will, notice that you are somehow blossoming in the wilderness... Step two is you simply share your story with them and, this is very, very important, tell them that God wants to do the same for them. You know, it's not that you don't say anything. It's that in the middle of your wilderness experience, 
as God begins to bring life, you simply say to them, be strong, don't fear. The same God who rescued me wants to rescue you. The same God who's giving me life wants to give you life. For example, if a friend says to you, how is it that you're making it through your parents' divorce when it's killing me? You simply respond by, God's helping me through it. And he wants to help you too. If a friend says, why are you not all torn up with bitterness and anger over the abuse you suffered as a child like I am? You simply respond, I was. But God's met me in the middle of this and he's helping me. And he wants to do the same for you. That's what verses three and four are about. God has placed us in the wilderness or God has allowed us to be in the wilderness so the rocks all around us can see life is possible. Life is possible in the midst of the financial crisis. Life is possible when your spouse runs off with somebody else. Life is possible when you're in end of life issues. Life is possible in the midst of a politically chaotic country. Life is possible and they look around and say, how are you living? Mm -hmm. And all you gotta do is say, God is feeding me. God is providing water for me. God's given me a note of encouragement. God preached a sermon to me that encouraged my soul. God brought along a check in the middle of the wilderness and it was a help. And he wants to do the same for you. Well, look what happens next. Verses five through seven. Then the eyes of the blind then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Do you see the promise of God? That when you speak the words, and God wants to rescue you too. That opens up a stream in the desert. And God begins to open people's eyes and unstop their ears. And he begins to lead them on a pathway towards himself. What happens next? Verses 8 through 10. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now let me unpack this for you. Step one is you allow God to plant you in the wilderness and then bloom where you're planted. Step two, you're just sharing your story with anybody who happens to notice that there's life where there should be death and you tell them God wants to do this for you too. Step three, God begins to use your words to bring life into their situation. We're about to get to step four, but one of the questions that might come up in your mind is, what if they start asking me stuff I don't know the answer to? 
What if they say, well, how do you even know that God exists? And what do you mean that God did these kinds of things? And what about the fact that there are Christians all over the world who are doing all sorts of terrible stuff? Or what if they ask me questions I don't know any of the answers to? Step four, show them the way. What does that mean? Bring them to church. How does this mean bring them to church? Let me show you. Isaiah switches metaphors on us. We've got a flower in the wilderness, and then he switches to a road or a highway. And look what God says. And a highway will be there. Where? In the wilderness. A road, a way, a highway will appear, and the highway leads from where they are to heaven. That's verse 10. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, the translators of Isaiah have helped us to realize the way here is capitalized with a W in verse 8. And the understanding is, is that in the Gospel of John, Jesus was asked a question very much like this, which is, where's the road to heaven? Where's the pathway to heaven? Philip says to him, one of his disciples, how do we get from here, the wilderness in which we live, in which Jesus told him, you're going to have trouble, it's going to be difficult, how do we get from here to there? And Jesus says, I'm the path, I'm the highway, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Isaiah is talking about here is what Jesus is referring to, is that in the midst of the wilderness, God sent the way. Meaning, Jesus came from heaven to earth to live in the wilderness of life that we live in, to suffer, to die, to be raised from the dead, so that he would be the way that is opened in the wilderness. He said, well, I thought this was about church. Hang with me. There's more to it than this. Jesus is the way, which means that Jesus' body, the church, is also the way. In the book of Acts, one of the most common designations for the church and for Christians is the way. Isaiah also appears to be referring to this. That in the same way Jesus is the way, his people become the way. And what's pictured here in Isaiah is a group of redeemed people who are traveling from the wilderness to heaven. And when the person says, how do I know if God exists? And how how can you be sure that these things are actually from God? And what will happen if something worse goes on? Or what do you do about this? Or how do you answer questions about evolution or the beginning of life? Or how do you deal with the fact about hell or anything? And you say, I don't know. Your simple response is, come to church. Come with me. Now, what are they going to experience when they come here? What should you expect when you bring them? What should they expect when they come? Well, they should not expect that we'll be able to answer all their questions. We can't. They shouldn't expect that we can solve all their problems. We won't be able to. They shouldn't even expect, and you shouldn't expect, that everything will go the way you want it to go when they come. I guarantee you there'll be a song that you're like, oh man, what are we doing? Or I'll say something up here and you're like, please don't say that. Whatever it is, I don't know, but they will not have a perfect experience. 
But what they will have, they will experience God. Jesus promised where two or three gather together, I'll be present with you. He tells us when you gather together to worship me and a non-believer comes in, they will feel and experience God's presence in this place and they will fall down and worship and say, surely God is among you. The reason why I told you all those stories at the beginning of the sermon, those were all this exact paradigm, which is, look, after you bloom where you're planted, after you tell people God wants to do this for you too, after you begin to see some level of life flow to them and you're stuck for what to do next, just simply bring them with you. Bring them to church. I was in a meeting this week and one of the people from this church read an article and I heard a quote and I was like, that is perfect for what I'm talking about on Sunday. It's from Tim Keller and this is what the quote says. Much traditional evangelism aims to get a decision for Christ. Experience, however, shows us that many of these decisions disappear and never result in changed lives. Many decisions are not really conversions, but are only the beginning of a journey of seeking God. Now, he is careful to say, other decisions are very definitely the moment of a new birth, but this differs from person to person. Now, watch this sentence. Only a person who is being evangelized in the context of an ongoing worshiping and shepherding community can be sure of finally coming home into vital saving faith. This is what God does. In the middle of the wilderness, where you are blooming where you're planted, and there are other people around you who have a financial crisis or a marriage crisis or a school crisis or whatever that may be, and you say to them, The same God who's sustaining me wants to sustain you. God says you will find there is the way, a way right there. Meaning there's a place you can take them. Not the building, the people that they can come and be a part of and say, there's a whole group of people who are also in the wilderness, who are on a journey from the wilderness to heaven. Why don't you come with us? And that's all you got to do. And I find that to be incredibly encouraging. Now listen, it is hard. You may say, you know, after hearing this, I'd rather just put a placard on my stomach and go stand out on the street corner. (laughs) Because it's hard to endure the wilderness. It's hard to bloom where you're planted. It's hard to have the courage to say, you know what, what God did for me, he wants to do for you. It's hard to say, why don't you come to church with me? Sometimes it's easier to just knock on the door and if they don't want to go, okay, well, I'm going to the next door. This is hard, but it's powerful. It's powerful. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to answer all the questions. You don't have to know where all the vert. You just have to say, you know what? I once was blind and now I see. Why don't you come with me? You don't even have to make Jesus show up here. His promise is, if you get together, I will be there. Don't be afraid. I will be there. And the number of times I've heard all of you say to me, I brought a friend this week, and when I saw what the topic was, I just shook my head, and I thought, this is going to go badly. Or when I saw what was being sung, or what was being said, or what was being happened, and then at the end, the person I brought thought, man, something powerful happened here. That's Jesus' presence here among us. In Isaiah 6, When Isaiah Isaiah gets a glimpse of the fullness of God's glory, 
when he sees this massive, amazing, all-powerful God who the hem of his robe, just the tiniest part of his robe, fills the biggest place in Israel, when he thinks about the fact that earth is God's footstool, (laughs) like he rests his feet on the planet, when he sees the massive amount of God's compassion and grace and mercy, when he understands his holiness, that judgment is indeed coming and that even though God is patient, he will indeed mete out judgment because he is angry at the sin in this world. When Isaiah finally gets a vision of this whole thing, he says, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And God says, don't worry, I forgive you. And then God says, but who's gonna take the message to other people? How are they going to know if nobody tells them? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And if you want to be the kind of person who God sends rivers of life to people in the wilderness, it's completely open to you. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to be able to be good at debating. You don't even have to be good at, at, at sharing these kinds. You just got to simply allow God to plant you in the wilderness. Bloom where you're planted. Choose life instead of bitterness or anger or selfishness. And then when people around you notice, just simply say, the God who is getting me through this wants to do this for you too. Why don't you come with me? Because there's a whole community of us that are trying to do this and you'll get to meet Jesus there. And I gave you a picture to try to help symbolize what it is that Isaiah 35 is talking about. I'd like to end this morning by giving you a far more powerful picture of what this looks like in someone's life. And so Sarah, would you come up here? Uh, Sarah's got a testimony she's going to share about Isaiah 35. As we've seen this morning, in Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 2, Isaiah writes, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. Like many of you, I have found myself in the desert that Isaiah describes here. My own wilderness journey began when I was a senior in high school. A trusted teacher who spoke freely about his Christian faith took me under his wing. Because I admired him, I was thankful for his care and attention. Over time, however, the relationship changed. This teacher began to isolate me from my family and friends, insisting that only he could truly understand and appreciate me. And although he often reassured me that he was my brother in Christ, his attention toward me became increasingly physical. It was only later that a Christian counselor helped me to understand I had been molested by this man. At the time, however, I was overwhelmed with confusion. I struggled to understand how a trusted adult could behave so inappropriately. I wrestled with feelings of guilt and shame. Was I responsible for what was happening to me? I also lived in a state of constant paradoxical fear. I was afraid that someone would find out and I would be scorned. At the same time, I was afraid that no one would ever find out and I would be stuck in the situation forever. More than anything else, however, I was troubled by God's silence. I spent many sleepless nights praying that God would provide a way out or put an end to what I felt powerless to resolve on my own. Yet the abuse continued for months. During that time, I began to see God as distant and unmoved by my cries for help. 
In my time of need, it felt as if God had turned his face away and forsaken me. Worst of all, I interpreted God's silence as condemnation. With a heavy heart and a parched soul, I wandered alone in the wilderness. The situation mercifully ended when I graduated from high school. The effects of the experience, however, were more lasting. The secret was eating away at me. With great fear, I eventually decided to confide in my boyfriend, who is now my husband. I expected my story to be met with accusations and scorn. Instead of condemnation, however, my husband spoke four simple yet life-giving words. It's not your fault. This was the first crocus God planted in my wilderness, a sign of new life in a parched land. With my husband's encouragement, I also shared my story with my parents, who responded with great love and compassion. During the months that followed, my husband and my parents helped me sort through what had happened and encouraged me to connect with people who could help. Their love and guidance were more crocuses in the desert as God continued to bring beauty to a barren land. More importantly, I began to pray and read the Bible again. As I studied scripture, God began to patiently and lovingly draw me back to him. He reminded me that his beloved son, my savior, was a man of suffering familiar with grief. When it seemed as if I had been abandoned, Jesus not only saw my sorrows, he also shared them. God also reminded me that the burden of my teacher's shameful actions was not mine to bear. My savior had purchased my freedom from guilt and shame on the cross. I began to see that in my wilderness wanderings, I was not alone. Once again, God was planting crocuses in my soul. Recently, God has given me the opportunity to share my story with other hurting women. It is a privilege to share their sorrows and lead them to the one who binds up the brokenhearted. It is also humbling to realize that the God who brought life to the desert of my soul can use me to speak life to other women in the wilderness. The crocus image used in Isaiah 35 resonates deeply with me, not only because I can picture the spectacle of a desert bursting into bloom, but also because I have experienced the new life Isaiah describes. God has planted crocuses in the wilderness of my heart. He has brought great joy and gladness to my soul's most barren places, and it is a truth I believe he wants me to share with others so they too can experience new life. Please bow your heads and close your eyes. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to talk to you for just a minute. Some of you here have been in and are in the exact wilderness that Sarah is describing. I just want to let you know the same God who's brought life into that barren place in her life will do that for you. And that those lies about condemnation, about rejection, that's not from God. He is not silent. It took a lot of courage for Sarah to stand up here and to share this. And with the support of her husband and her friends at church, We're here early this morning praying over her and for her. She did this so that you can know that the same God who saved her will save you too. Some of you here are in the wilderness of being the perpetrator of such a thing. 
I said you can be in the wilderness because of the sins of others. You can also be there because of your own sins. Although the world will never tell you this, I want to say to you, God also wants to save you too. The idea that there is no forgiveness for what you've done, that the damage cannot be undone, that you will forever be a prisoner of this is simply not true. For others here, I want you to take just a minute and in the quietness of your heart, think about what wilderness you're currently in. Is it something at school? Left out from a friend group? Bullying? Classes that are too difficult? Is it a financial wilderness that you're in? Not sure how to make ends meet? Bills coming, not sure how to pay? Is it end of life issues? As you watch physical, mental abilities begin to slip away? Is it the loss of a loved one? Is it an ongoing struggle with pornography? Is it an addiction to food? Is it a world of materialism where you're trying to keep up with the people around you? Is it some panic attacks or anxiety, spiritual warfare, something you can't describe? Is it a child that no longer wants to talk to you? Is it a marriage that's falling apart? Is it a desperate desire to be married and not have that come to pass? I want you to think about that wilderness for just a minute. You have a choice. You got a choice to be a rock or a flower. You can either allow the bitterness, the anger, the resentment, the difficulty to harden your heart, or you can let God feed your soul. And right now in the quietness of your heart as you're thinking about that wilderness place, if you're willing, just simply ask God to help you blossom there. Ask him to help you receive a word of encouragement, perhaps from today, perhaps from a friend, a passage of scripture, God's faithfulness in providing. After you've done that, just think for just a moment, who around you is also in a similar wilderness that's watching you? And in the silence of your heart, just ask for the courage to share your story. We think, well, this is a lot easier than going door to door. In some ways, it's not. It took a lot of courage for Sarah to stand up here and do this. Courage that comes from the Lord. Ask him to give you the same courage. And ask the, for an opportunity to simply invite them to come with you. Come with you here to this place.
to meet the God who loves them, just like he loves you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.